Hello. A recurrent theme in recent books, perhaps reflecting a sense of our social polarisation, has been an author's sense of feeling divided. Last year on Bridges to the Future, Otega Ruagba discussed what it's like to be a black woman with an elite circle of mainly white friends. In her wonderful book, Respectable, The Experience of Class, Lindsay Hanley recounts her feelings of inadequacy and alienation as a working-class woman from the Midlands joining the London literary elite. Today on Bridges to the Future, we explore a different cultural, economic and social divide. That between the town and the country. How does this rural-urban relationship crisis feel? Especially if you have a Wellington boot on one foot and a stiletto heel on the other. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by broadcaster and writer Anna Jones, author of an engaging, thoughtful and sometimes rather moving new book, Divide, the relationship crisis between town and country. Hi, Anna. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. And thank you very much for inviting me onto your podcast. Oh, well, I really enjoyed the book. So tell me first, Anna, you know, the question I guess you expect, which is why did you decide to write this book? There were two reasons, one which was very personal and one which was more linked to the job that I do, sort of agricultural journalism. And on the professional side, I get invited to speak at a lot of agricultural conferences, rural events. And I can say without any slight hesitation that there's always the same question comes up, which is what do we do about the disconnect from the urban masses? What do we do to repair our relationship with consumers, with the general public, with urban populations? So it is something that is felt very palpably among a lot of rural people, particularly those in the farming industry that I work with a lot. So that made me think there's something here that needs to be explored. You know, even if this is a perceived divide on their part, they are still feeling something that is worrying them. And where is that coming from? What's caused it? And so on. And then a personal reason for writing the book was that, yeah, I grew up on a very small traditional family farm, an upland beef and sheep farm. My family have been in that area since the 1700s on my mum's side and my dad's side and haven't ever really left. I was the first in my family to go to university and move to a town and then a city. And, you know, I very much came from one culture and moved into another and only then realised when I moved to Birmingham, Bristol, Manchester, how different these worlds really are in their outlook, in their worldview, in how they feel about things, think about things. And it's two different languages sometimes. And and I did feel very much torn in two. I always felt slightly on the outside that I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole wherever I went, because moving to an urban area did change me. So going back and trying to fit back into that country life, having lived in the city is not easy. It changes you. But equally, in the city, I would always feel just slightly on the edge of things, not totally part of the tribe. So those are the two reasons I I sat down and wrote Divide. 
Yeah, and we're going to discuss some of the ideas in the book. But you know, one of the things that I, I loved about it was that it takes us all over the place. I mean, it goes from the Australian outback to kind of inner city Birmingham and Bristol, and there's an autobiographical feeling to it. But also, we meet a whole range of characters throughout the book. Now, it structured your book kind of around a series of themes, such as food, environment, politics, community. But I don't want to spoil the experience of reading the book. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to take a, a slightly different angle. I want to start with your experience as a reporter on Country File. I mentioned to my countryside-loving brother-in-law yesterday that I was talking to you, and I mentioned Country File. Oh, City File, he said with a grimace, before admitting he's hardly ever watched the programme. I think that you know both the popularity of Country File, I don't say broadcasting phenomenon, but also the way that some people, particularly countryside folk, like to dismiss it as a kind of sanitised version of their lives. Mm. I mean, both these things speak to your core thesis, don't they? Oh, yeah. And <laughs> believe me, I've been on the front line of that particular debate for a really long time. I started working for Country File back in 2006 as a young researcher. And I, I don't work for them anymore. I'm freelance now, but I was on the programme for 12 years on and off. And in that 12 years, I saw it move from this sleepy Sunday morning slot at about 11 o'clock on a Sunday. It only had about 1.82 million viewers. And then in 2009, they moved it to Sunday night prime time, you know, sort of the warm up to call the midwife, Strictly Come Dancing, the very glitzy slot. And uh, audience figures rocketed overnight. We went up to 9 million at one point and we were getting more than X Factor at one point. So it, it really had this extraordinary journey from a tiny thing that no one watched to one, one of the most loved factual programs on British television. And it was really interesting watching how perceptions of it changed, both in an urban setting and a rural setting. Because in the early days, agriculture and certainly agricultural journalism was not a genre that my peers found particularly impressive. In fact, they thought it was quite cute that I would be covering rural affairs and sort of didn't mean to, but I suppose were slightly patronising and, and condescending in their view of it whenever I spoke to people that were working in London covering economics or crime or home affairs or something. And it went from that kind of, oh, it's all very darling buds of May and very cute. And then we saw agriculture with Brexit really rocket up the news agenda and become relevant in a way that it had never really been before. So, you know, of all the industries in the UK, probably the most exposed to the effects of leaving the European Union, developing new agricultural policy, and at the same time, all of these debates around the environment, around food, the whole crazy vegan versus plant eaters debate, which I talk about in the book, which is just mad how binary that became. And then suddenly it was looked at a little bit differently and people would comment on, you know, factory farmers and all these evil people in the countryside who are killing everything with chemicals and maiming badgers and doing all these terrible things. So in my relatively short career at the BBC, I saw the programme I was working on covering a very fluffy subject right through to something very serious that people had very serious opinions about. But among country people, there was very much a sense that Country File was aimed purely at the hobby farmer 
the rich person leaving London and buying a few acres in the countryside and having a few pigs and chickens scratching about and that it was all about move to the country and buy some alpacas and that it wasn't serious in the way that it reflected the reality of rural life. And that is a particular argument I've had a lot with farmers. If I go to a conference, somebody will always sidle up to me at the conference buffet and tell me how much they hate Countryfile. And I always have to sort of defend that what the programme does and does very, very well is take something that was an ignored niche, overlooked area and package it up in a way that millions of people care about it and find it interesting and, you know, making agriculture and rural issues accessible and interesting. And people say how amazed they are to watch Adam Henson TB testing his cattle. They'd never even knew cattle could get TB. You know, the, all of these issues are well known if you live in the echo chamber. But for the general public, many people know very, very little about where food comes from or how the countryside is managed and, and things like that. So I think Country Farm has done an amazing job at that. And I'm very, very proud to say that I've worked on it. But boy, do I have a big old PR job talking to the farming industry about it. They love to hate it. And the towny file, as you've heard, is the one that it gets most probably. I felt, Anna, at times if there was a kind of motif for the book, it would be that line in the film, A Few Good Men, when I think Jack Nicholson says, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. And there's a sense that people in cities say, we, we demand to know what's going on in the countryside, the factory farming or the bad environmental practice. But they don't want to look at the other side of the truth, maybe, the fact that we need the food, the incredible challenge of making a living in the countryside, for example. And, you know, you're a truth teller. There's a lot of frustration in this book about how people won't really fully understand what's going on in the countryside, but also people in the countryside themselves are blinkered. Mm, absolutely. And two things there on the, on the big debate, you know, the big issues that we're facing that absolutely demand that our urban and rural populations work together. So that will be how we manage our environment tackle climate change and the nature crisis, how our food is produced, public access, all of these are really big issues. And so often the discussions are only had in a very black and white, superficial way, because the communication that is needed, the depth of communication between people of different cultures, different backgrounds, isn't happening. And that is because of age-old divisions between them. So on the farmer's side and rural people side, there can be a sense that oh, they don't really get it. They don't really understand us. You know, when they move to the countryside, it's people of privilege with a lot of money seeking a bucolic dream that doesn't really exist. And then when they get here, they moan about our loud tractors and spreading muck and waking them up in the morning when we're drilling crops or harvesting. And, uh, you know, that leads to a kind of and, and I would say slightly unkind loss of respect for people that want to move to the countryside and live a different life there and want to embrace a more rural lifestyle. And I do find that intolerance that can come from farming folk a little bit mean sometimes. And then, but on the other side, there are people that don't understand. They do not understand what a genuine farming life is like, yet have such confident opinions about it that they put out there in a way that 
they are the all-knowing authority on these issues. And yet there is so little curiosity about farmers in the way that they speak. You know, you'd be amazed how many environmental events I've been to which are talking about, you know, the big environmental questions of our time. And there's never a farmer there, ever. I'm the nearest thing to a farmer. I've sort of become the box tick for farmer. And I'm not a farmer. I'm a, I'm a journalist. I, I live in the town. I live in the city. You know, so if I'm the nearest thing, a lot of these events are getting to a farmer. It just shows that there is a massive divide. The communication is not happening. And therefore, then you get very extreme debates coming out, like we need to just get rid of farmers. We don't need them at all. Or on the other side, you know, the sense that there is this pro-vegan, anti-farming, anti-meat agenda running right through the mainstream media, which again, isn't true. It's a perception. It's a perception of there being an enemy, there being a threat on both sides. And, and you're right. I do get very frustrated because I live these worlds. I live, I live in both of these camps and I know all the good and all of the well-meaning energy and I can see the arguments and I can understand them. But I just don't think we're making those arguments or having those conversations in a way that is going to open the minds and open the ears of the people that are across the table from us. So that is what I try and do with the book is sort of beg for just a little bit more empathy and understanding and acknowledgement that these worlds are different. So they have to be handled differently and with a little bit more sensitivity than we currently are. One person who looms large over the book is your father. It's almost as though every time you mull something over, whether it's about agroecology, veganism, or even voting conservative, you have a conversation either in your head or sometimes in real life with your dad. <laughs> he's, he's there all the time, Hannah. Is he really? That's actually, I never realised that. That's the feedback that I've had since the book has been published. And I suppose, yeah, my dad, he does represent a kind of a, a Jiminy Cricket character for me, I suppose. He's very different personality to me. My dad is, I've always been full of questions and not quite, I'm very willing to change my mind. And I think it's good to be fluid in life like that. I'm open to different arguments and learning different things. And, but sometimes I can get lost because I'm so sort of hungry for input from all sorts of different people that sometimes I kind of don't quite know how to work all that out. And my dad is very, he's a very stoic man. He doesn't use more words than he needs to. He's silent a lot of the time, but he's an incredibly deep thinker and very, even though our family haven't had the means to sort of travel a lot or go a lot of places in our lives. My dad is very worldly in the way that he thinks. He's always been very curious. He, and he is somebody a bit barometer for me. So I will kind of like run these things past him and kind of go, what do you think of this? And also a lot of my influences do come from urban areas, from university educated middle-class people. A lot of the books that I read, a lot of the people I hang out with, the world at the BBC that I've worked in for many years, the influences I'm getting are coming from a certain type of person. And my dad is not like that. You know, he's a, a working class farmer. He didn't go to university. My mum and my dad left school at 15. They've had a very different life. And it's really important for me to be able to take what I hear in the city or what I read in books or what I hear on podcasts and run it past them. 
And I know that from my dad, he won't just have some knee jerk reaction. He will absorb it. He'll go outside and feed the cows and think about it. And then he'll go around the sheep and have a bit more of a think about it. And then he'll come back and he'll give me his view. And yeah, I have come to value that a lot in the work that I do. In, in fact, you you even suggest towards the end of the book that this is a fundamental distinction between the rural and the urban is that is that people in cities just talk a lot more. And that, they, yeah, and that pe- people in the countryside have got the capacity to deal with silence. I, that was a kind of interesting point. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't believe it. Like, so me and my sisters growing up you know both my sisters went off to university and have followed you know the the same sort of journey I have in a way and you know whenever we go back and we'll go with dad to the livestock market we find it excruciating how these groups of farmers men stand around not talking to each other they're having a social experience they're engaging with each other socially but they're communicating on some kind of higher level we can't hear. They, they're sort of standing there, leaning on gates, and they just make noise. They just kind of go, all right, oh, oh well, ah, oh, well, right. <laughs> and we, what are they saying to each other? Like, what are they coming? And we're st- <laughs> we always say it's so excruciating. It's like somebody say something. And then that will go on for a few minutes and they'll make a few comments about the weather or the prices of the livestock or something. And then one of them will go up and then just walk off. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's being around animals so much develops your (laughs) nonverbal communicative skills. Maybe. And I I just, I envy that. There is a, a peace there. There's a comfort in, we don't have to fill every spare available second with words and and things. And, you know, and and you can probably tell that I'm not like that. (laughs) And again, these are subtle cultural differences that are so fascinating to me. And I asked a local farmer and I I wrote about it in the book about, have you noticed that town and city people talk a lot more? And he's like, oh, I don't, they, they love to talk. They're always asking questions. They'll ask questions about things I never even thought about. (laughs) <laughs> talking about your dad there and and i think you know if we think of farmers we think of i don't know our classic farmer is a middle-aged white man one of the other things in the book it's not explicitly a theme but it, it recurs a lot is that slowly but very significantly the kind of makeup of the farming population is changing there are more women there are from a very low base more black farmers it's no longer an incredibly brave thing to be gay in the countryside that's that's something that crops up quite a lot in your book and i think it's important to you to say to people you know you don't have to fit the stereotype to get into farming or or to enjoy living in the countryside i feel passionate about that i think social media has helped a lot with that and you know i spoke to a farmer's son that came out a few years ago and he said it, you know, social media and television and seeing rugby personalities and sports personalities opening up about their sexuality really paved the way for him in a very conservative rural community to, to open up about his own sexuality. And it was fine. His parents, you know, understood and his dad, a very similar kind of farmer character to my dad just said, as long as you're all right, that's the main thing. And that's all he had to say about it. And then he just got on with feeding the sheep. And yes, there is this idea that the countryside is this backward, intolerant place. And it is true that in the countryside, unfortunately, 
backward intolerant views have found refuge in some areas. I'm not saying that it, it is as progressive a space as, as the cities. It's not. But it's also wrong to just assume that it is completely intolerant or, or racist or homophobic. It, it, that's not true. And it's certainly not my experience. People don't feel comfortable, as comfortable talking about these issues. But when faced with it, they, they deal with it and they get on with it. Because again, it comes back to that sort of stoic rural way of being. It's like, oh, right. Oh, okay. Oh, well, that's that then. Let's get on with it. And so people don't sort of sit around discussing things as much. And I think that that can sometimes be taken the wrong way, that it means a bad thing. I, I just don't think people, as I said before, I just don't think a lot of people in traditional rural communities feel the need to talk over things again and again. As long as they know that you're okay and you're safe and the conversation's been had, then that's all right. Let's just crack on. And that's what Gethin, the farmer's son, that was very much his experience. But yeah, it, it, it is important to say that there is still a lot of work to be done in the countryside and rural areas around inclusion. And, you know, I, I put that out in the book. But again, it's this area of grey, isn't it? It's you, you can't just say the countryside is racist. The countryside has got a problem with diversity and inclusion, definitely has, but not everyone there is racist. And it's about how do we have these really difficult conversations without not acknowledging the experience of people of colour when they go to the countryside, which can be an extraordinarily discomforting place for them. And they talk to me about that in the book, the characters that I've spoken to, but at the same time, have enough of an open mind to accept that actually people in the, in a rural space just might not deal with issues of diversity inclusion in the same way we might in the city and learning that, you know, that is also okay. So um, pretty much everything that you look at, there is always a difference in the language and the culture in, in how things are are perceived in a rural and urban context. Another theme is around kind of home roots. I've just moved back to York. I mean, I say moved back to York. I haven't lived here for 52 years. But something I noticed is how quickly coming back after those 52 years, it felt like I, I was at home. Now, that's partly because York is just a kind of massive heritage theme park. But I've spoken to other people who've had a, a similar kind of experience that that when you go back after how long, if, if it's somewhere that you kind of grew up in, there is a, a kind of connection there that is surprising. And I, I wanted to link that also to, to something which you don't discuss much in the book, but that's towns. So, you know, your book is about the rural-urban divide, but towns, I think you live in Shrewsbury now, don't you? Do, towns yeah. like York and Shrewsbury, smaller towns as well, they, well, they sit in the kind of, in between space, don't yes, they? they do. I, was, I was talking to someone about York the other day who, who said, mm, you know, talking about the kind of cultural divides in York, and they, they said, yeah, York can't decide whether it wants to be a global heritage city or just the largest market town in North Yorkshire. So there's there's something two different ideas there, Anna, but something about roots and about going back to our roots, but also about the phenomenon of, of the town and its its conflicted soul. So the town is a really interesting one. And I speak to a um, academic from the University of Newcastle about it. And she talked about Barnard Castle, the infamous Dominic Cummings going to check his eyesight town. And she'd done some research on 
how the, the makeup of that town and how people identify the residents identify within that town. And she was saying it's it's a real mixing pot because there will be people that have moved out of Newcastle or bigger cities that have moved in and want to have a, you know usually retirees and they will set up different art projects and poetry workshops and they'll be very arty and they'll bring that part of the city lifestyle into the town and they're very sort of community minded and quite community active and she said there's that group of people but then there's also retirees from the farming community or people that come from the farming community and would identify more with Teesdale as their identity so they still have a really strong connection to the hinterland and I thought that was really interesting you see towns actually being this multicultural mix of both which is great and on roots and connection, I absolutely recognise what you, your experience in, of York coming home to Shropshire. There is this wonderful feeling of recognition and familiarity and simple things like recognising signposts that were there when I was a little girl and they're still there. And, oh God, I haven't seen the sign for that village for a really long time. And that's stirred something in my memory. Simple, silly things like that. But equally, there can be a little bit of a sense of sadness for me as well, where you realise that you can never go back to being the person that had never lived in a town or a city and was wholly a country girl. She's gone. And that's taken me that's taken me a really long time to come to terms with because it's a part of myself that I value and I'm so proud of that being the world that I come from. But that's not who I am anymore. And I used to get quite upset about that because I wanted, I, was, I got a little bit obsessed with trying to get back, wanted to get back to that country life. And that door click shut the moment I went to university. Like it changes you in such a fundamental way. And there are times where I'll have conversations with my cousins who didn't leave and I can feel it. I can feel that there's a difference between us. And it's invisible and sometimes I feel I'm sort of behind glass and I can't quite get back. And they can't quite understand me either. It's a it's a two-way thing. There's a almost a a sad kind of formality that comes into relationships that were once so easy, you know, when we played around the farm together as kids. And that's something that takes a bit of coming to terms with and it makes you realise when you live in a different culture for a really long time, I'm sure maybe expats feel it, but when you move to the city, it changes you and you don't realise it happening until something has been severed and you can't go back. Yeah, and it makes you think about the experience of of migrants and you know, I think particularly of people who came here from India, Pakistan or Bangladesh, many of whom were farmers, so they were experiencing the double shift from moving from rural to urban, but also moving from their home country to England and the sense of dislocation that must have been involved there. Yeah. And also very quickly on that, I speak to uh, Conrad, who's on our allotment in Bristol, who is a Jamaican guy. And he, exactly what you just said, he was born and raised a farmer. His family had been farmers for years. And he, he's got an allotment in Bristol, which is pretty much a farm. You know, he, he works on that land as if he was farming because he needs to hold on to that identity because that strongly feels that's still who he is, even though he's now living in a city and driving a taxi for a living. So obviously the big theme of the book, and we've talked about it already, is 
is the divide, is your impatience at polarization in debates between town and country. But then towards the end of the book, I sense that you're starting to feel more hopeful. You're starting to feel that almost because of necessity, really, because in a sense, what I almost felt towards the book was that in a sense, you're seeing people, environmentalists, farmers, who in the face of all the contradictions and polarizations of public opinion, think, well, look, in the end, we've just got to try and sort this out. And that there's a sense of hope. There's a sense of new dialogues towards the end of your book. Absolutely. And I think that comes from spending a lot of time talking to the people on the ground who have got their hands in the soil and are doing stuff. And so much of the division comes from the chattering. And I hold my hands up. I think my profession, I think the media has got a big part to play in that. And we probably need to look at our responsibility there. And these sort of macro level discussions where on the news or in the newspapers or in even in books and things that people decide to take a platform on, and this is going to become my drum that I'm going to bang and everyone's going to follow me. This whole culture does not reflect what is happening on the ground. It's not representative of the amazing conservationists and environmentalists and farmers and agroecological pioneers, regenerative revolutionists that are out there quietly getting on with their thing, working away to improve the soil, to improve biodiversity, to cut back nutrients that have been dribbling into rivers and streams. You know, they are working. And it's when you talk to them that I feel most inspired and hopeful and optimistic. So I suppose by the end of the book, maybe I'm feeling very grateful for the amount of people I've been able to meet who are doing the stuff. So maybe I can listen less to the people that are just saying the stuff because doing is probably more effective on overcoming these things than just talking about it. Yeah, and there's something, isn't there, Anna, about practical action, which brings people together in a way that kind of theoretical discourse, media discourse doesn't. And and, and I just want to end with a kind of personal obsession of mine and your, your views about this as a project that town and country can work together on. So I've moved to York. I'm 50 metres from the river and as I walk along the river there are places that you can get down to it and I was a keen cold water swimmer in London I used to swim in Tooting Lido and occasionally we'd cycle up the Thames you had to go quite a long way up the Thames before it was clean enough to swim but you can't swim in the ooze and you can't swim partly because of the water company dumping sewerage into it but also because of the runoff from farms so what I mean it is a scandal isn't it that in this day and age, there are almost no rivers that are clean enough to swim in. Look at this lovely hot summer's day. It'd be wonderful if the people of York were able to, to jump into their river. What are the prospects here? This project of cleaning up our rivers, is, is that an area where we could work together across the urban-rural divide? Oh, completely. And I agree. I mean, I've just bought a paddleboard and I go out on the River Severn and uh, it's filthy. And it makes me really angry as well. But I was speaking to a farmer who actually features in the book. He's down in Herefordshire and he's in the Y catchment. And oh my goodness, these issues really come to fever pitch on the River Y because there's been rapid expansion in free range poultry units. So that has contributed to water quality issues. Obviously, there's the water companies as well, sewage and so on. 
But what they've done, and this is all part of the new agricultural policy as we move away from the common agricultural policy EU system into our new environmental land management scheme. And you're seeing a lot of these almost cluster groups of farmers, sort of local nature recovery, it's called, and landscape nature recovery. And that's bringing together landowners, farmers, land managers, conservation groups, water quality experts, a whole heap of people. They come together across a catchment and they sit down and they hammer out a plan. So, right, your farm ends there, your land begins there. I'm going to do this my time of year, at this time of year, you're going to do that. And they're connecting up and they're knowing, rather than only being able to do a little bit of work on their little patch, which isn't going to make a difference to the river at all, they're working together to improve water quality and, and open up to each other about things that they're doing. And and I think that that's about having a really safe space. And I watched a really interesting debate not so long ago that was held by the Wildlife Trust about water quality in the Y catchment. And one of the farmers there was saying it's become such a toxic space in terms of the debate. And some farmers are getting themselves in a bit of a, a fix with manure or nutrients that they can't quite hold on to or if there's a big rainfall event it's washing stuff into the river and she said some farmers know that they need help and that they are probably polluting but it's become so fractious they can't there's nowhere they can go and ask for help and that's something that if you've got more groups of people working together in a more open and collaborative way if somebody is worried about their risk of polluting, rather than thinking, I've just got to keep my head down and hope nobody notices this because I'm just going to get hung, drawn and quartered in the court of public opinion, actually by having a group of people and going, I'm really worried about this coming winter or this rain that's forecast, I need help. That's something that will hopefully get people working together in a way that they haven't been able to. But again, that comes down to trust and it comes down to support. We still need a stick because there are people polluting our rivers that do not give a damn about it. And those people need, need sorting out. But there are a lot of people and hopefully the majority who really want to improve this, but might financially not have the means to or just need help and don't quite understand how to manage their manures or whatever it might be. And I think we have to get a lot better at knowing when to use the carrot and knowing when to use the stick and making sure we use both. Well, reading your book, Divide, The Relationship Crisis Between Town and Country, I love reading it and it actually inspired me and I've decided I'm going to get involved in maybe the Rivers Trust or some other organisation. I'm not just going to sit here and complain about the fact that the use is filthy. I'm going to get involved and, and see whether there's something I can concretely do. Maybe that will involve me having thoughtful conversations with farmers about how we can support them to reduce run off into the rivers who knows so That's fantastic yeah well, so, the fact that you do a podcast and ask all of these questions to all sorts of people just shows that you're able to have thoughtful conversations with people so i think you'd be great at talking to farmers well a typical urban person i just love the sound of my own voice <laughs> anna thank you so much for joining us thank you As Anna describes the stronger dialogues between farmers and environmentalists about how to develop economically and environmentally sustainable models of farming and countryside management, there's a sense that 
not for the first time, maybe this crowded country could be at the leading edge of rural innovation. Our devotion to the countryside, it's very much part of our national character. If we can overcome the polarisation between the urban and the rural, perhaps we can learn something that can help us with all the other ways in which we are divided. Goodbye. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.